Are you ready for the word this morning? I'm going to continue in the Fruit of Transformation series that I began a few weeks ago. And I'm going to add another message today. I'm going to call this message, The Name That Transforms. What I have wanted us to see through this series is that it is Daddy's heart. It's Daddy's desire. It's His will for us that we would transform. I mean, how many of you know that if you had a child, you wouldn't want to see your child stuck in kindergarten for 13 consecutive years, would you? No, that just wouldn't make sense, would it? And the Father wants to see us graduate in a sense too. He wants to see us learn about His love in deeper ways and His grace in more precious ways. And He wants to see us go through that transformation period. If you left this child in kindergarten for 13 consecutive years, you know what you'd have at the end? You'd have a child with a 13-year kindergarten conviction. Basically what you'd have. Yet many believers have grown accustomed to living in fear and condemnation. They've grown accustomed to living with a conditional salvation stuck in a kindergarten classroom of the mind for many years and sometimes really for a lifetime, right to their very deathbed. I always say it like this, like living next door to the railroad tracks, at some point in time you tune this train out. At first it bothers you, but if you live there long enough, I'm telling you, you will have tuned it out. You just won't hear it anymore. And I think that's what happens is the stuff that used to bug them up front, the condemnation, the fear, the guilt, the shame, whatever used to was that bugged them up front, they've just kind of tuned it out over time and it doesn't disturb them in the way that it does. And they don't really realize how much it's affecting them until they really have a true sense of peace come back. At work in the wintertime, there's a um, humidifier right literally behind my desk. And how many of you know it's got a fan and a humidifier, right? And when that fan kicks on, it's not terribly loud. And so it doesn't disturb me while it's running, really. But when it shuts off, then I realize, wow. See, now I have something to compare it to. And I realize, wow, I love the quietness. And that's what I'm getting at is sometimes when we live with something, even pain, whatever it may be, we can have a physical pain in our bodies and we've lived with it so long. We've managed it so long. We've just gotten used to it. And that's how, honestly, it becomes with fear and how it becomes with condemnation at times. Many believers believe that their vagabond emotions and mindsets are just part of the Christian life. They just come with the Christian life, get used to it, get over it, get on with it, live with it, is what they say. Friends, I'm going to say something. I want you to underscore my words in your heart. That is a lie. That is a lie. And it's a lie that we have believed. It's a lie that we have embraced, in a sense. I felt the Holy Spirit say it this way to me the other night. He said, it is collusion with the enemy to believe that fear and condemnation and homeless emotions come standard with our salvation package. See, what that does, those words draw a picture in my heart. You see, we're so used to these plans and these packages. All of us have cell phones and we understand packages. We understand plans. And then we understand what comes with it. And if we don't like our plan, what do we do? We upgrade, don't we? We upgrade our plan. And a big portion of the body of Christ has believed that this is just normal in Christianity. But it's not normal. The Father did not save us so that we could believe lies that fear and condemnation are part of our salvation package. I agree there are times that we have natural fear, where we experience natural fear. That is normal. We can all get afraid at times. I get it. And the emotions that we deal with, sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's anger, sometimes it's love. And I mean, there's a lot of emotions. Emotions are given to us by God. And if they're processed and handled a certain way, they're healthy emotions. They can be very healthy. 
Let me ask you a question. Where are the scriptures that reference Jesus walking in fear and condemnation? Can you find them? Can you find them in your mind? That Jesus is walking in fear and condemnation. And where are the scriptures that support that Jesus had vagabond emotions? You know what vagabond means? It just means wayward. It means just all over the place running around. Jesus didn't have vagabond emotions. You could look high, you could look low, you could look near and far. And I'm telling you, you won't be able to find these things in Jesus. You want to know why? <laughs> because they didn't exist and they don't exist. And because we are like him and he's like us now, come on. We're not designed to live that way either. And it tears people up. The emotional realm is connected to the physical realm. I like to say it like this. It's like driving around with a trunk full of bricks in a brand new car. I don't care if the car's new or not. Eventually, you will tear up that suspension because it was not designed for a load of bricks constantly and taking all that abuse. You say, Mark, I understand that about Jesus. And the reason he was able to do that is because he was God. Well, you'll get no argument out of me. Jesus is God. Jesus is still God, right? But friends, Jesus was also a man. Jesus was a man. He was a man wrapped around God, God on the inside of man. God, yet man. Now, what are believers? <laughs> We're man. A woman, we're man wrapped around God, God on the inside. What Jesus is, we are too. I'm not saying we are Jesus. I'm not saying we are God, but we have the same spirit as him. We have the ability to think like he thinks. Doesn't the scriptures tell us that we have the mind of Christ? Well, what does that mean? The mind of Christ means we have the access to the mind of Christ. And if you keep access in the mind of Christ, you begin to think like Christ. I told you I trained a new fella in sales here a couple of months ago, probably daily. He'll call me over to his cube and say, this is what I'm doing. Can you tell me if this is right? And I'm glad that he does that. But I'll begin to look at his notes and I have to look over on the left-hand side to see if he put that note in or if I did, because it sounds exactly the way I write. That's a good disciple. That's a good student. And I told him, I said, Tyler, I said, man, I can't hardly tell your notes from mine. He said, I paid attention. And that's what a disciple is. The disciple is a student. It's a learner, if you will. It's not just some spiritual person. Disciple is a student of the word. So believers are like God in that, yes, Jesus is a man with God on the inside, and we are a man with God on the inside. The difference is, is that Jesus knew the heart and the reputation of his father. He knew it well, he knew it perfectly, and he didn't question his father's will. See, we get so high and mighty sometimes, we think we know better than God sometimes. I don't know as though we would say that, but our actions kind of prove that. Jesus knew his father's voice and he was in constant communication with his father. As he walked, it wasn't just in prayer when he got alone in the early morning hours or maybe the late evening hours. He was always in prayer, constant communication, constant fellowship with his father. That's kind of the life I like to live where I don't just go, I'm going to set aside a half an hour here or an hour there and be in fellowship with you or be in communication with you. I like to communicate with him all day long. And he likes to communicate with us all day long. He's always nudging us <clears throat> and showing us things, revealing things, encouraging us, whatever it takes. But he's always communicating. He's always fellowshipping with us. So Jesus understood this. He understood his father's voice. He understood his father's heart. He understood his father's will. And you know what? He understood that his father was a good, good father. He understood that his father, as a good father, only gave good gifts. He knew that. In Luke chapter 2, in verse 52, we find these words. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature 
and in favor with God and men. Now, when was Luke referencing this? This was referencing Jesus when he was at the temple at 12 years of age, when he was separated from his mother and father. And he tells that story, how Mary and Joseph come back and find him at the temple. And then Luke is writing about that. And then right when he's done writing about that, he inserts this verse right here. And he said, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. In other words, Jesus as a man experienced transformation. Okay, he was transforming. The scriptures tell us that he was growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. To say that he grew like that is literally to say these things, that he grew intellectually, he grew physically, and he grew experientially. He grew in wisdom, that is growing intellectually. He grew in stature, that is growing physically. He grew in favor, that word favor is grace, it is hares. He grew in grace, he grew in the understandings of his father's grace. He grew in the understandings and the appreciations and how to deliver the grace. That's experiential. As a child, Jesus had to learn how to walk and talk. That's hard to understand almost. Come on. But see, if Jesus came right out of the gate, right out of the womb, walking and talking, I don't think you could call him human, to be honest with you. You know, because it's a different species because everyone in the human race has to learn how to walk. They have to learn how to talk. Jesus had to learn how to walk and talk. He's growing. He's growing in stature. He's growing in wisdom. He's growing in the revelation of who his father is. He's growing in the revelation of who he is. Listen, I don't know if at five years old he knew he was the savior of the world. The scriptures don't tell us. Maybe the father hid that until he was 12 when he went to the temple. My feelings is that's when he understood who he was. That's when he got his identity. And that's when he said, I needed to be about my father's business. It was the first revelation that he said, I need to be about my father's business. And my father's business is spiritual, very spiritual. So Jesus had to learn how to walk and talk. <laughs> Jesus, come on. I bet he burped once in a while as a child, don't you? Come on. I bet you Mary grabbed him and she put him right here and was patting his little back and all of a sudden, burp out of little Jesus. Sure he did. I'll bet Jesus passed gas once in a while too. Come on now. You ever seen a baby that didn't do that? And I'll bet, to be honest with you, Mary did the same thing you guys do. She probably looked at him and said, you little stink pot. You little stinker, stinker. I, you know, you guys have done all that, right? They're having a relationship. They're having a mother-son relationship, loving one another. He's a man. If he never did anything, he'd never threw up a little bit or never burped a little bit or passed gas. He goes, something's different about this baby. You know, I don't know. This ain't right. There were times that Jesus no doubt cried when he was hungry or tired or wet. Oh, let me give you one that's going to really mess with you. Come on. Jesus messed his little diaper at times. He never thought about it like that, did you? <laughs> Jesus messed his little diaper. Friends, Jesus was a man wrapped around God, God on the inside. You say, Mark, how does knowing all that stuff about Jesus benefit me? I'll tell you how it's going to benefit you because there are going to be times in life as you're going through it that you're going to burp. There's going to be times where you're going to cry. There's going to be times when you pass gas. I'm not talking literally, but I'm talking about you're going to stink up a place with your words, your attitude, whatever it may be. And there are going to be times when you mess your little diaper, friends. But even in those times, even when that happens, we are still man wrapped around God, God on the inside of man. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel of grace teaches us to know the heart of the Father. Learning His heart is the breeding ground of transformation. If you don't know His heart, you can't transform in a positive way. And if you think you know His heart, but that He's got a heart that's not good, it's a heart that's mean, whatever it may be, you're going to transform, but you're going to go south. You're going to go the opposite direction. 
that he's going to try to pull you up into in wisdom and stature and grace, favor, harass among God and men. The revelation of the new covenant truths is designed to help us more accurately hear the heart of the Father. Hearing his heart transforms us from the inside out. Hearing the echoes of his voice. And that's how I hear his voice, to be honest with you. It echoes in my spirit. Sometimes you hear it through other people. Sometimes through the scriptures. But primarily it's through my thoughts. I'm a man. It's through my thoughts. It's through the echo inside of my spirit. We know that lifting weights will transform muscles, don't we? You can't lift weights and not transform your muscles. We know that education will transform our resumes. We know that nutrition will transform our health. Let me ask you a question. What is it that transforms our soul? This is your mind. The will, your will, is your will to do the will of daddy. If it's not, be honest. Okay, it's all right. Daddy has a way of changing that. Daddy has a way of transforming us so that our will does come into perfect alignment. Sometimes we're kind of like this. This is our will. This is daddy's will. But he says, son, I'm going to bring you into perfect alignment with me. And so what is it that transforms our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions? It sure would be nice to know because it's the playground for our day-to-day activity, isn't it? Well, I can give you a long and complex answer, which I'm known to do. Or I can just give you a short and to the point answer. Any votes on that one? Short and to the point? Okay, I see you back there, PJ. <laughs> short and to the point. Listen, friends, we are transformed by beholding grace and truth. We are transformed by looking into the heart of grace and truth. We are transformed by the grace and truth that came through Jesus Christ and his finished work. This is where transformation begins, is to see that it's always been about the name of Christ. We sang about it over and over and over again this morning. Where did you see that it was about you in there? No, it's about him. It's about his name. It's about his power. We're transformed by beholding grace and truth. Now, when I say that it's the name that transforms, that can be a little ambiguous. So let me see if I can clear that up a little bit. The name that transforms. The word name literally means authority. It means character. It means reputation. So to say the name that transforms, I'm literally saying it's the authority. It's the character of God. It's the reputation of God that transforms us. And when I look through the word, you know what I see? I come away with a good, good father. And that transforms me on the inside because it gives me hope that he's for me. He's not against me. It's the name that transforms. I think it was Valerie here a few weeks ago. She talked about the power of attorney. And the power of attorney, I've never been one, but I know enough about them. I know at the bottom, somebody's going to sign their name, giving you power of attorney, and they're going to write your name in there. And whatever that agreement consists of, let's say it says, Mark has the ability to make financial decisions for me. That means my name is just as good as the person who signed it. That's the way it works, friends. If it says Mark has the ability and the power, the authority to make health decisions for me, I've given you that power through the name by signing my name and putting your name in that document. Friends, that's what God has done for us. He's given us the name that is above every name. That at that name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. It's a name like no other name. And he says, I've given you that name. Well, why does he give us that name? Because he wants us to see you have authority. And that name will bring character to your life. The appreciation of that name will bring character to your life. It really will. It will bring reputation. So let me ask you the question, whose authority, whose character, and whose reputation are doing the transforming? 
It's God's, isn't it? And when we become convinced of God's authority, God's character, and God's reputation, then our fugitive days will come to a close. You say, Pastor Mark, what are you talking about fugitive days? That sounds kind of weird. I want you to think about what I just said there for a second. Your fugitive days will come to a close. A fugitive is someone that's always on the run. They're always on the run. They can't find rest. A fugitive is someone that is always looking over their shoulder and moving from place to place, living in an intermittent state of fear and condemnation. That's a fugitive for you. And when you come into the revelation of the authority that's found in that name, the character that's found in that name, the reputation that's found in that name, it's Jesus himself. I'm telling you, your fugitive days will close. Amen? You say, now Mark, what exactly was Jesus' reputation? You know, that's a big question. If you had to come up with an answer to just summarize, what is the reputation of Christ? What was his reputation? I want you to see this in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, that's authority. Look at what it says. Who went about doing good. <laughs> that's his reputation. You say, wait a minute now, what about love? Well, love is doing good, isn't it? What about being kind to somebody? That's doing good, isn't it? What about being generous? That's doing good, isn't it? This is Jesus's reputation. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed. That means all the people that were already under authority, but they were under the authority of the enemy. It says, and he went around healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Do you know what oppressed means? It means weighed down by hopeless thoughts and feelings that heavily affect the mind and emotions. That's oppressed. You just weighed down. You can't seem to shake it. You just have this feeling about you that affects your mind and your emotions. You see, emotions will often mimic that of a fugitive. On the run, not at rest, moving from place to place, confident one day, condemned the next, living in an intermittent state of fear and condemnation. It's a horrible way to live, friends, and yet many believers are stuck in the seat of their kindergarten swing. They have not graduated. They have not grown much in wisdom, stature, and grace. They have not fully embraced the graces and truths found in the name. They have not fully embraced the graces and truths found in the authority, the character, the reputation of Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the name that transforms. Friend, if you're looking for something that's going to transform you more and better and quicker than the name of Jesus and his character and his reputation, I'd like to know. I'd like to preach about it. But you can't find it because it's not there. It's about Jesus. It's about that name. Friends, I'll tell you what, you put me in a crowded room, someone say Jesus, I'd be like, what? <laughs> that name gets my attention, friends. Because you're going to talk about my Savior, I want to know what you got to say. It's his name that transforms. And it's more than just a name. You know, there were a lot of people named Jesus in his days. It was a common name, to be honest with you. He wasn't the only one named Jesus. But he was the one anointed by God. He was the one that went around doing good. He was the one who went around healing the sick and those who were oppressed by the devil and setting them free. Why? Because he's a good Jesus. He's a good father. It's the name that transforms. In Acts chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we find these words. One day, Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. I want you to remember that, okay? I want you to remember what time they went. 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple court. So here is a man that was born lame. Not once in his life had he run a race. In fact, he'd probably never even run an errand. Like a five-year-old boy on a playground, this man's been crawling around in the dirt all of his life. And he's depended on friends to carry him everywhere he goes and from the religious people going into the temple to support him. 
He was well rehearsed in beggar's language and his cry for alms pierced the air as he would sit at gate beautiful and go alms, alms, alms. That's what they did back then. Alms, alms, give me money, give me money, alms. He had become an expert at shaking a tin cup, but he couldn't shake himself out of his lame condition any more than a sinner can shake himself out of his sinful condition. Everyone needs to call on the name that transforms. But all that changed when the lame man was introduced to the authority, to the character, to the reputation, to the name that transforms. I'm talking about the name that will knock the tin cup out of our hands and it will strip us of the beggar's language, friends. I'm talking about the name that will lift us from our kindergarten playground and cancel our fugitive days. Please make note that Peter and John did not go to the temple at the time of sacrifice. They went at the time of prayer. Sacrifices and prayer meetings were two different things, two different experiences at the temple. You see, sacrifices were held in the morning and then were held at twilight every day like that. But these disciples were going at three o'clock in the afternoon. Now do you get why they're time stamping this thing? This will make more sense when we look at Exodus chapter 29, verses 38 and 39. Now this is what God told Moses. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs shall be offered each day continuously. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb at twilight. Did you see that? You bring your offering, your sin offering, whatever it may be, in the morning. We have a prayer meeting in the afternoon. You bring a sin offering or whatever the offering is in the evening, morning and at twilight. Peter and John didn't need to bring a sacrifice earlier that morning. Why? Because they were on the right side, post side of the cross and resurrection. And they knew that Jesus had already become their once for all sacrifice. Likewise, when we soil our little diapers and we get dirty on the playground of life, we do not, hear me say that, we do not need to bring a sacrifice for sin we simply remind ourselves that Jesus is our sacrifice. Now, the religious people will not be able to stand that. What does our sacrifice for sin look like anyway? I mean, when we think we brought a sacrifice for sin, well, it showed up differently in the worshipers of the old covenant system. They brought animals. You know what we do? We make promises. We make promises. I'll try harder, God. We beat our chest. I'll try harder. I'll read my Bible more. I'll study more. I'll pray more. I'll go back to church, some will say. I'll say I'm sorry a thousand times. I'll fast for a week. That's what our sacrifice looks like. And guess what? It only works for a short period of time. And you find yourself back doing the same old stuff over and over again. How do I know that? Because I live there. Look, nobody knows a house like the person that lives there, right? Friends, let me say something so that I can put a tag on what I just said. There is nothing wrong with godly sorrow for our sin and thanking God for his forgiveness. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with being sorry. I'm not saying when we blow it, we just go, oh, whatever, I'm under grace, no big deal. No, we should be, in a sense, sorry that we blew it, but we don't beat ourselves up. We don't try to bring the sacrifice. I'll pray more. I'll do more. I'll be more. No, no, no. We remind ourselves of what Jesus has done for us. We remind ourselves of that name that transforms. We remind ourselves that he finished the work. To bring a sacrifice to God for sin is to enroll in kindergarten all over again, friends. See, those are basic elements of truth. That is by grace through faith that you've been saved. You didn't bring a sacrifice when you got saved. You humbled yourself. You got on your knees wherever you were, however it happened. You humbled yourself. You saw your need for Christ. You didn't bring no sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. So to bring a sacrifice to God for sin, like I said, is to enroll in kindergarten all over again. Our need to sacrifice for sin is collusion with vagabond emotions and erroneous doctrine that puts a tin cup back in our hands and turns us into beggars at gate beautiful. You see, friends, Jesus is our gate beautiful. He's the gate beautiful.
That was the last song we sang. What a beautiful name it is. He's the one that's beautiful. He's gate beautiful. And we, hey, we are the temple of the living God. That's what the scriptures tell us. That he's gate beautiful. We're the temple. And he lives on the inside of us. Let's have a prayer meeting. Let's have a conversation. That's all prayer is anyway. It's just a conversation. Get rid of your begging God for stuff. Friends, come on. It won't do you any good. Just have a conversation with him. Enjoy the time together. Love on him. Let him love on you. We do not have to beg. And we do not have to bring a sacrifice. Our sinful diaper has been changed once for all. We simply follow the voice of the one who has called us out of hollow and deceptive philosophy and the basic principles and the rudiments of the law and has seated us with Christ at the right hand of God. Friends, we are the sheep and Jesus is the gate and Jesus is the gatekeeper. In John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10, we find these words. Notice how I put them in red? <laughs> See, you wouldn't have to question who's saying them, right? That's Jesus, right? I love Jesus' heart. He says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate. We're not talking about some old gate with rusty hinges here, friends. He's speaking in the natural, but he's talking about himself. And he says, anybody, anyone, everybody, who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs up some other way as a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. You see, he walks into the sheep pen, and the sheep are listening to his voice, and they just follow him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Leads them out of what? <laughs> you got to think bigger than just a pasture. You got to think bigger than just a sheep pen. He leads them out of fear. He leads them out of guilt. He leads them out of shame. He leads them out of worry. He leads them out of condemnation. He's leading us out of that stuff so that we can rest in green pastures. He leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them. Isn't that a good shepherd? He's out in front. He's not behind them, driving them. No, he leads them. And they know his voice. And so I believe that most shepherds just walk along and they sing. They do a lot of singing, kind of like me. They just sing and they talk a lot. And the sheep just kind of keep hearing his voice. And if they kind of start wandering off a little bit because there's some green grass over here, they hear the shepherd's voice growing a little more faint. And they just kind of get right back on track again. This is how it works in the natural with shepherd and sheep. He leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Remember what I was telling you about? Echoing on the inside of you, coming through the scriptures, coming through another person at times. But it says, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, isn't that amazing? Now, you guys all got that when I said that, didn't you? Imagine there would have been the two or three Pharisees sitting right here on the front row. They had all been scratching their head right about now going, I, I didn't understand what you were saying. Well, now, can you go through that again one time? See, listen, those that belong to him understand his voice. You are doing things and responding in ways that you don't even know. Because we're so in tune to physical hearing that if we don't hear something, then we think, well, I don't know, maybe I just did that myself. Friends, he's leading you. He has a way of leading us. We know his inner voice. And his inner voice is not a big, loud, booming voice, although it can be at times, but most of the time it's not. It's a gentle shepherd's voice caressing our heart, saying that there's a better way to do that. Follow my lead, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate 
for the sheep. In case you didn't get all that stuff where I was talking about the gate earlier, let me be more specific. <laughs> I'm the gate. I'm the gate for the sheep. Me, Jesus, the shepherd. I'm the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. And then he says it again. He says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus said, but I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly or life to its full. That's Jesus's words. Friends, Jesus is our gate beautiful. It's in his authority. It's in his character. It's in his reputation as the good gatekeeper and in the name that transforms that we find pasture, we find rest, and we live life and we see good days. We live life to the fullness. That's Jesus's words. How many of you would agree with me that kindergarten math is different than university math? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, doesn't it? One is basic, the other is advanced. One, you can have without the other, but you can't have advanced math without basic. You got to have a proper foundation on which to build. Have you ever heard of a drum rudiment? You probably haven't unless you play drums. A drum rudiment. I put it up here on the board just so that you could see what it is. A drum rudiment is, it says, is one of a number of relatively small patterns, little small beats, little rolls and different things that we do with drums, right? But what they do is they form the foundation for more extended and complex drumming patterns. In other words, if you're going to want to be a good drummer, you've got to learn the foundational rudiments. How do I know this? Because I was a drummer in school. And one of the first things they teach you is the rudiments. You've got to learn the different rolls and flaps and different things you do with sticks. Otherwise, you cannot become what you maybe are destined to be without these rudiments in place. It happens the same way when it comes to piano or guitar, probably all the instruments, that there are scales that you learn. And scales can be some of the most boring things in the world to sit there. But they build dexterity in the fingers. And so this person who sits down at their first piano lesson, this little boy, this little girl, they've imagined in their head, someday I'm going to be before thousands doing this very complicated piece that's been composed for me or by me. I'm going to do this. Well, friends, let me tell you something. If you don't learn the scales, if you don't learn the rudiments, you will not be doing that someday. You're going to be playing chords. You're going to be okay. Fine. That's fine. If that's all you want to be, that's cool. The choice is yours. Friends, the Father's heart for us is to learn the rudiments of grace and the scales of the new covenant that we might trust his heart for us. And even in times when we face difficult opposition and circumstances, grace and truth are the building blocks that encourage our hearts and unite us in love that we might know the mystery of God, namely Christ, the name that transforms. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, we find these words. Here's what Paul wrote. He said, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He said, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, fine-sounding little drum beats. I think I told you this before. When I first started drumming, I wanted to get by the rudiments. And so I just thought I had an ear. I could just hear music, and I did pretty good. And all of a sudden, one day, I was just doing my own thing on the drum, and my band instructor stopped the whole group and looked back at the, in the back of the room and said, Mark, are you reading the music? <laughs> I felt so embarrassed because, see, I got off and thinking, I can do this by myself. Reading this music and learning to read music is too complicated. It takes too long. I want to get to the end here. I want to just get out there and beat that drum. That was my goal, right? And the Apostle Paul says, I've got a goal too here. He says, my goal 
is that you would be encouraged in heart and united in love. He said, this is my goal for you. He said, but there's a foundation that love grows up and out of. There's a foundation that encouragement grows up and out of. And he said, so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God. What is the mystery of God? Christ. Concealed in the Old Testament. Revealed in the New Testament. Mystery. No longer a mystery. We know him. He lives on the inside of us. I love how this says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then he says, I tell you, this so that no one may deceive you by fine sounding arguments. You know, sometimes you can listen to somebody and boy, that sounds believable. That sounds true. And you begin to follow them and eventually you realize they didn't know what they were talking about. But it sounded like a fine sounding argument. Paul says, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. He says, so then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, how did we receive Christ Jesus as Lord? By grace through faith. He said, just like that. I want to draw you back to the rudiments. I want to draw you back to the scales. I want to draw you back to the foundation. The exact same way you received Christ, he says, continue to live your lives in him. By grace through faith. Make everything about grace through faith, access by faith. Notice he doesn't say anything else. There's no extensive list here. He says it's the same way you receive Christ. There's not a person in this room that did not receive Christ by grace through faith. We all received him the same way. He says, continue to live your lives in him. I love this part. Rooted See, friends, if you keep moving around like the fugitive, you can't grow roots. And a name for that is called a bonsai. You've got to have a root system because things are going to come along in life and try to move you and persuade you. Fine sounding arguments are going to come along. But when you've got a root system that goes down into the rich waters of Jesus Christ and his finished work, you are like that tree that's planted by rivers of living water. You cannot be moved. Oh, we used to sing that song. Do you guys used to sing that song growing up? Like a tree planted by the water. Come on. I shall not be moved. He says, continue to live your lives in him rooted. Why would he say a word like that? The apostle Paul is using a language that they're familiar with because so much was agriculture back then. He's speaking in language they understand. He says, rooted and built up in him. Not you, built up in him. Strengthened in the faith. The same faith that you got saved with. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. In other words, he's saying rudiments, building blocks. Not so that we can beat a drum for Christ, but so that we can know the heartbeat of Christ. And then he says, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. So what he's saying is, look, somebody's going to come along, a door-to-door salesman's going to come along, and he's going to open up a briefcase and say, look at all the stuff I've got here. And he's going to persuade you to say, wow, this is cool stuff. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is someone's going to come along and they're going to show you some basic principles. They're going to show you some human traditions. And he says, I call that deceptive philosophy. He said, if there's anything that does not depend on Christ, he said, that is just human tradition, philosophy. Don't you fall for it. He said, don't you be taken captive by that stuff. That's what he said. So through those scriptures that I just read, the Apostle Paul made mention 
that a man could be taken captive. He said that with his own words. It literally means taken or overtaken is what it means by deceptive philosophy, human traditions, and the basic principles of this world. That was his words. In fact, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. So let's ask the question. What are the basic principles that the Apostle Paul was referring to? Wouldn't you want to know that? I mean, come on. I'd want to know. If he says, yeah, I want you to avoid this, I mean, because that list didn't seem like it was clear enough for me. Just basic principles, human traditions? What are you getting at, Paul? Well, let's continue in the scriptures. Let's stay in context. We're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Now let's all jump up to Colossians chapter 2, verse 20, and follow that into Colossians 3, verse 3, and he'll tell you what those basic principles are. He says, since you died with Christ to the basic principles, there he is, picks up that same language, of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He said, these rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. So let me ask you the question, why in the world would anybody want to put themselves back under a list of do's and don'ts, a list of rules and commandments? Paul told us that these laws were destined to perish with use. Yeah, like a kindergartner searching for a playmate. We like them in the swing right next to us. We like them within reach. We like to have a conversation with them once in a while. No, I don't, friends. Like the friends of the lame man, we want human effort to carry us to Gate Beautiful. There are so many people you meet when you say, can I do something I know that would really bless their heart? They say, no, thank you. I'm just relying on myself to get this done. I'm not that way anymore, friends. I used to be that way. Just pride, probably. And not a good understanding of grace. Someone says to me today, I want to do something for you that I don't care what it is. Uh, I'll just say, thank you. Yeah, okay. Let them do whatever they want to do, okay? Let them bless you. So many people want to use their own efforts to carry themselves to Gate Beautiful. They want to bang their own drum. They want to bring their own sacrifice. They want to open their own gate. They want to change their own diaper. They want to shake their own tin cup. They want to establish their own righteousness through do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Friends, a mentality like this is as negligent as a lifeguard who's working a crossword puzzle while on duty. It's just negligent. Why not pay attention to what Christ said, what Paul said for Christ? Don't get involved with these human traditions and these philosophies and these mindsets. Anything that doesn't depend on Christ, reject it. If it's not by grace through faith, reject it. The new covenant is grace. It's not about laws. Let me read these scriptures you see on the screen one more time. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why as though you still belong to the world do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. Do you see that? So initially they look like, yeah, that looks right. That feels right. That must be right. So they have this appearance of wisdom. Regulations have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, Putting ourselves under such rules and regulations may look like we're growing in wisdom and stature and in favor, grace with God and men, but in reality, our efforts lack value in restraining carnal indulgence. Next scriptures. The Apostle Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ. How could you be raised with him? Because you died with him. Galatians 2.20, you died with him. You were buried with him. Romans chapter 6, you were raised with him in resurrection life. Since you have been raised with Christ, 
Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated. Look at those words, at the right hand. Remember, I told you we would revisit those words, at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I love that. Can I share something with you? I'll tell you how I knew that I had graduated from kindergarten. Spiritually speaking, is when I came into the revelation that the law is the basic principles, but love is the advanced form of worship. <laughs> love is the university. Love is the advanced form of worship. It's what Christ's heart is about. You look, you can get anybody to do something, even under protest, pay them enough money, threaten them enough, be mean to them enough, coerce them enough. You can get anybody to do stuff for you. But inside, they're screaming at you the whole time. I hate your guts. I hate your guts. But look, love, 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 friends. We know that we've graduated and gotten away from these basic principles when we are operating from a platform, from a heart of love. That's what he said. The law is earthly, but the love is from above. Now, <laughs> you think I forgot about the lame man at Gate Beautiful, didn't you? Oh, I didn't forget about him. I just put him on hold for a second. I had some other things I needed to do there. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. One day Peter and John were going to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. I find it interesting that the scriptures timestamp the time of day that the prayer meeting took place at the temple. It tells us that it was at 3 in the afternoon. May I remind us that Jesus himself died at three o'clock in the afternoon. It was the exact time of day when Jesus cried, it is finished. You won't need to bring the sacrifice at twilight or tomorrow morning. I am your once for all sacrifice. Next scriptures. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. I bet you could have heard a pin drop on carpet. Now, why would Peter have to say, look on us, look at us? Obviously, because the beggar wasn't looking at them. You see, a beggar had no confidence. People with no confidence won't look in the eyes. They were used to rejection. Not everybody put a coin in his tin cup. Yet many believers find themselves begging God in prayer. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. In other words, he said, okay, I'll go along with this little charade. You want me to look at you? Fine, I'll look at you. I'm expecting to give something now because you're talking to me. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. How many of you remember that little kid's song? Come on, everybody who grew up in church heard that one. And these scriptures, I don't think, get the attention. They don't get the preciousness that they really deserve kind of because we've turned them into that little jingle in our head. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God. Remember this song? Come on, every one of you have sung that song, haven't you? So this story doesn't get the preciousness, the quality that it should get. But I think there's a wonderful miracle, many miracles within this one story. Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. In other words, money is not going to get you out of your situation. It's not always about handing out money, writing checks for people. He said, but what I do have, I give you. 
I love this. Look at these words. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. We make it too complicated sometimes. It's so easy. He didn't ask him his name. He didn't ask him how long he'd been there. He didn't ask him any questions. He just said, in the name of in other words, he was saying, in the authority of Jesus Christ, in the authority of that name, in the character of that name, in the revelation of that name, in the reputation of that name, he said, I'm putting it all out there for you, friend. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. You can't buy your way out of a condition like that. It comes by grace through faith, friends. It comes by the name that transforms, the name that's filled with authority, the name that's filled with character and reputation. And then I love this part. It says, taking him by the right hand. Well, why would it tell us that? I mean, if he took him by the left hand, why would he say he took him by the left hand? What do we need to know that for? The fact of the matter is he gave him a hand. It says, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and leaping and praising God. He is a happy man. He's been transformed. He had a beggar's mentality. He had a just let me lie here like an old hound dog mentality. Just ring my little tin cup mentality. But when they said in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He got up, he took Peter's right hand and he pulled him up and his ankle bones grew strong and he realized, wow! See friends, the miracle here is not just that his legs work, but remember what I said earlier? You have to learn how to walk. If you've never walked, this guy's been lame from birth. His muscles are atrophy. He's got nothing working here. So you see all these explosions, this grand finale of fireworks going off in this man's body and his life. You'd be happy too. You'd be walking and leaping and praising God. Look, I don't even have to have anything like this in my life to be walking and leaping and praising God. I can't even imagine what this guy is going through. Wow. You see, the right hand speaks of blessing, friends. At his right hand, the scriptures tell us, are pleasures evermore. Salvation is found at God's right hand. The right hand speaks of strength throughout the scriptures and fellowship. But most of all, friends, the right hand speaks of righteousness. Righteousness is at God's right hand. That's Christ. He is our righteousness. The right hand speaks of righteousness. In Psalm chapter 48, Verses 9 and 10, look at these words. He said, We have thought of thy loving kindness. Loving kindness in the Hebrew is chesed. It means grace. That's as close as they could get, friends. And the psalmist says, We've been thinking about your grace. We've been thinking about your loving kindness, O God. In the midst of thy temple. Interesting, he would say that because the temple now is not a building. The temple is us. And I've been thinking about your grace working in me. Do you see that? I've been thinking about your grace at work on the inside of me. He said, according to thy name, that's authority, that's character, that's reputation. He said, according to thy name, O God, so is thy praise under the ends of the earth. He said, thy right hand, the hand that lifts me up, is full of righteousness. Did you see all that in two little verses tucked away being prophesied from the psalmist there that would bring everything from this message together in a couple of little statements? We have thought about thy grace, thy loving kindness, O oh God, in the midst of my temple. According to thy name, your authority, your command, your loving kindness, your character, your reputation. I'm left to do one thing, and that is praise until the ends of the earth. He said, thy right hand is full 
of righteousness. Beautiful, man, so beautiful. Continuing in Acts chapter 3, let's get back to the lame man. He's no longer lame, but let's get back to him. Acts chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk! Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and leaping and praising God. Next scriptures. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man. Not the lame man now, it's the same man. They recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I don't know if there's a better definition of Christian living than going about doing good. If you said to me, Mark, why are you still here? Because I still want to go about doing good. When my going about doing good gets over with, I'm ready to go see Jesus. I can't put it into any other words. A better definition than Christian living is to go about doing good. Not for your salvation, but because of your salvation. From your salvation. From the character that he's put on the inside of you. From the salvation he's put on the inside of you. From the reputation, from the authority, from the power that he's put on the inside of you. Doing good. And that's displayed quite often helping somebody in their time of need. That's what Peter and, and John did here. Isn't that what they did here at Gate Beautiful? Isn't that what Jesus did as he was walking the earth? The scriptures told us he went about doing good, healing those that were oppressed of the devil. Beautiful. That's what we're called to do. My closing scriptures, John chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. But as many as received him, to them gave he power. That word means authority. It means the privilege. It means the reputation. I'm giving you my reputation. I'm giving you my character. But as many as received him, that's Christ, to them gave he the power to become sons of God, look at these words, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Next scriptures. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Didn't Jesus tell us in John chapter 10 and verse 10 that we could live life to the full? <laughs> full of what? Full of grace and truth. Friends, it has never been my heart to communicate in teachings or lessons that are over our heads or so that I could come across as super spiritual. I would rather have my listening audience see the rudiments of graces and truths that are found in the name that transforms. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Daddy's heart for his children is transformation. He loves to see his babies grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor, in grace with him and man. There are going to be times throughout life when we grow hungry, we grow a little weary, we grow tired, times when we burp or cry or mess our little diapers, but even then we are still man wrapped around God, God on the inside. Friends, if fear and condemnation are an ongoing struggle for you, it's because you are under an old covenant mindset. You might want to think about a free upgrade to the new covenant. As much as weight transforms our muscles, education transforms our resumes, nutrition transforms our health, in the same way, in the same manner, our soul is transformed by beholding grace and truth. I'm talking about Jesus. I'm talking about the name that transforms our crawling in the dirt days have expired. Our dependence on friends to carry us all over the place are over. Our need for the religious to support us are history. 
To bring a sacrifice to God is to enroll into kindergarten all over again. Our own sacrifice is collusion with vagabond emotions and erroneous doctrine and lays a lame man at gate beautiful. But friends, we can abandon our tin cup and our beggar's cry at the gate because daddy's right hand is full of righteousness and loving kindness. And he is in the midst of our temple. Jesus is our gate beautiful. Friends, the father's heart is not for us to bang drums for him or perfect scales, but he does want to teach us the unforced rudiments of grace, that we might be encouraged in heart and united in love, and that we might know the mystery of God, namely Christ. I'm talking about the name that transforms. In Jesus' name, amen. Daddy, I so praise you and I so thank you for the name that transforms. I have watched this name do wonders, miracles. And Father, I thank you. I celebrate every time I see your name lifted up. I thank you for that, Father. I thank you, Father, that we can shed this old mindset that we're some sort of beggar beside Gate Beautiful banging a little tin cup and asking for alms. We're beyond that. That's nonsense. I thank you, Father, that we've left those elemental forces that were at work under the old covenant as we've stepped into the new covenant of grace. And it's by grace through faith that all things consist. So I thank you for that, Father. I thank you for what the psalmist wrote, Daddy. He said, at your right hand is righteousness, and we are full of that righteousness. And so, Father, we receive that the only way we can, by grace through faith. As this word is doing a work in our hearts, I understand there are going to be times that we mess our little diapers, times that we burp and get things all over the place. But I thank you, Father, that even in those times, we remind ourselves that we are man wrapped around God, God on the inside, and that one on the inside is Jesus Christ, the name that transforms. In Jesus' name, amen.